when I met with Ian, Jamal, and Brandon to prepare for this event that we ended up running, you know, earning seven figures, they've all earned a million dollars in a single year selling. One of the things that they really told me and that they wanted to make sure to communicate in this event was that they're all really pretty ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And what we're going to get into in this three-part series is some really cool stuff on what you can take from these folks so that you can level up your income. But before we get to that, thanks for checking out the podcast. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. My name is Jason Bay. I'm your host. And really the mission that I'm on and the goal of this podcast is to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So this three-part series what we're gonna be talking about in this first part is really what we call crossing the chasm. So how did these three guys get from six figures to seven figures? And you're gonna hear some really cool stuff as we open here. Jamal got fired twice early in his sales career before he landed $50 million deals at Oracle. Uh, Ian was a rep at Salesforce. You know, he hit almost 400% of quota two years in a row. He missed three years in a row. He missed his quota you know, prior to doing that. And Brandon, he was a rep over at Live Person, closed a ton of big deals there. Uh, his first role, he only sold two deals in the first six months. That was one thing that really surprised me about all of these guys is their stories, their journey has been filled with failure. And I guess that's what makes them you know, ordinary, right, in that regard. And what we're going to talk about is the transformation and how they crossed the chasm into these extraordinary reps that they are today and, and what they're doing to help reps. So stay tuned for the three-part series. You're listening to part one. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get notified of the next episodes that are coming out. And let's get to it. Let's get started. I want to make sure that we have as much time as possible for everyone to just, you know, sort of soak up as much as they can from these three. Um, real quick, so the event, I just want to run through what we're going to be covering over the next three days. And then we're just going to get to have as much conversation as possible today. So today, this uh, conversation today is going to be focused around crossing the chasm. So crossing the chasm, what we're going to talk about more is like what the journey has been like for Ian, Jamal, Brandon, what's the journey been like crossing from six to seven figures? And for those of you asking, the call is going to be 60 minutes today. It'll be recorded. We'll send it out afterwards. There'll be a replay. We'll get it to you. Um, what we're going to talk about next week is more outbound. So breaking through, getting that first appointment. And then in week three on the 28th there, we'll talk more about running the sales motion. So that's what we're going to be covering today. What I want to do real quick is just introduce these three, and then we're going to get right to it. So Ian Koniak, we got him on the call. Uh, he spent close to nine years at Salesforce, where he was a number one rep and hit almost 400% of quota two years in a row. And Ian, you're just launching your coaching business, right? I think on Monday, dude. So right. you work with account executives. Congrats on that. That's super cool. Uh, Jamal. He's going to tell us a little bit more about where he's hanging out right now. I think you guys would be excited about that. But Jamal has been a career enterprise seller for over 20 years. And really where he spent a lot of his time was on these mega deals. Um, the first mega deal he closed was in 2012 with Oracle, and it was $50 million. Jamal's also got a great business and a mega deal masterclass where he helps account executives and, and reps 
land some of these larger deals. And then last but not least, and we'll be done. Uh, I'll be done embarrassing these guys by by hyping them up and talking about all their accomplishments. Uh, Brandon has sold over fifty million dollars in SaaS sales by closing transformation deals with some of the world's largest brands at uh, Live Person. So he entered the seven figure annual earners club back in twenty nineteen, and Brandon's got a cool business as well. So without further ado, I got your guys' intros. Hopefully, didn't embarrass you guys too much by uh, talking talking about all your accomplishments. I know that's a little awkward, but uh, we started talking before we launched this about abundance. And for those of you that have questions, keep them coming in the chat, drop them in the Q&A. We definitely want this to be pretty interactive. Um, but we talked about this sort of mindset of abundance. And I think it would be kind of interesting maybe to talk about, like, why would someone want to earn more money? I know that might be kind of obvious, but money's kind of one of those things that's sometimes a taboo topic that people don't like to talk about. And I'll sort of throw this question your way first, Jamal. How do you think about abundance and what, you know, learning how to you know really close some of these larger deals, grow your income? Like what has that done in terms of abundance? How do you, how do you think about that? I, I think there's, there's two sides of that coin. Um, one is as you're, you're going through your career, you're, you're getting better, you know, more or less on, on the rocky road every year. And at some point, you, you reach a level, you know, you, we're, we're all on this journey of mastery, you know, and, and we go from uh, the, the, the understand, understanding something in a hypothetical way to understanding it in a practical way to becoming good at it. And then, you know, further we get toward mastery. And at some point on that journey, we begin to feel at least somewhat competent and somewhat comfortable. And at that point, we can start to let go of the reins that we've been holding on so tight. And it's, in my experience, that was a huge trigger to help me move from, you know, a, a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset, that general feeling of, okay, now I'm good enough that I know that I'm going to be okay. And that's the one side of the coin when I think about abundance versus scarcity. The other side is as you're climbing that mountain, when you're at the beginning, very often we're in the scarcity mindset because we don't have much. We don't have anything. And we were we were talking about abundance before the call started, and um, you know, the, I, I if you'll allow it, I'll, you know, for a, a minute or so, I'll, I'll kind of tell the story about what really hit me and that what still hits me today is that my my first experience with sales was selling books door to door, and the reason that uh, I was doing that is because my parents were doing development work in Africa, and I lived there with them for three years. And it was in South Africa. And at that time, um, uh, the South African rand had plummeted. My family's savings was basically uh, had extremely little value. So my parents couldn't help me with college. And I found myself a freshman at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, with like $100 in my account. And I went to go get student aid. And they said, sure, you can have a few thousand. It'll, it'll arrive in six weeks. So with about $100 in my account, I had to make it six weeks until that first check came. And uh, if, any, if there's any UNC folks on, on the call, they'll know that uh, the, the, the most famous chicken place on, on Franklin Street was called uh, Time Out. And they used to make these chicken biscuits by ripping off uh, a breast of chicken from the bone and putting them on a biscuit. They would sell those um, leftover bones. They called them bones for 10 cents. 
And I basically lived on two bones, a plain biscuit, and a glass of water for dinner for almost six weeks. And during that time, I uh, still gets me. I, I knew what it was like to, to not have, to, to be in a mode of scarcity. And then I got this job selling books door to door. And the first year sucked, but then I got better and better. And by the end of my time selling books uh, to pay for college, I got really, really good at it. And sometimes it's that fear or that knowledge or that experience of going through a real time of scarcity that completely motivates us to move through whatever difficulty we're going through or whatever hurdle in our, in our, in our path. So sorry, that was a little bit long, but two sides of the coins And you know, I, I can tell you right now, all of us can get to that abundancy mindset and, and a life of abundance when we, when we keep pushing. Yeah. Ooh, man, getting it started with a bang. That's, I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that. And, uh, I think one thing that all three of you have in common, when we first started planning this, you said, hey, I really want to make sure that we talk about how the we're all just ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And we all have these stories of failure. And Ian, I want to kind of kick it your way next. Uh, you missed quota three years in a row. Was this during your time at Salesforce? Maybe kind of bring us back to a time where things weren't quite as abundant you know, as they are now. As Jamal was was talking, I was uh, thinking of that. Um, there, there is financial scarcity where we experience firsthand what it's like not to have, and then there's mental scarcity where we experience what it's like to not feel worthy because we're not performing to our potential. And for me, that was where I hit my rock bottom in in Salesforce. I had always been someone who prided myself on being a top performer. I came from selling copiers and was their number one AE sales manager and director for 10 years. I go to Salesforce and I'm the hardest worker in the company. I really was. And I grinded and I pushed myself. I actually got lucky my first year. I hit rookie of the year, found a big deal. And then the three years after that, I fell on my face hard. And that third year was the hardest by far. Because the first two years I missed it, I was on an enterprise team. I only had a couple accounts and I had a really tough boss to work for. And I said, you know what? This isn't me. It's my accounts. It's my boss. It's my territory. I'm going to change my situation. So I moved to commercial and I said, I'm the transactional guy. I'm the guy who can you know, work hard and hit plan in that last year. I finished at 95% and I had given everything I had. I had worked harder than ever. I had changed teams. I had a good boss. I had a good territory and I still missed it. The last day of the fiscal year. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I screamed at the top of my lungs with a pulsing headache. It was 11 PM on January 31st, 2017. And I remember looking at myself and not even recognizing myself and thinking I was nothing. And I was in so much pain because I had failed now and I only had myself to blame. I had changed my situation. I worked my hardest and I still missed it barely. And that was the moment. That was the moment I said, never again. I will never have this feeling again in my life because it hurts so much. 
And that was my crossing the chasm moment. So that scarcity was not a financial scarcity. It was a scarcity of worth, of of self-worth that I had to go through to really transform myself to become who I am today. Five years ago, it's been. Wow. One quick follow-up to that is, it sounds like a big theme there was, you had a moment where you really took ownership. Did you go through a period where maybe you didn't want to take ownership or it was hard to take The first two years, I missed it. Yeah, that's right. The first two years, it was point the finger, my territory, my boss, my company. Oh, I was about to leave Salesforce. But the third year, like I said, I changed the situation. And that's when I realized, hey, maybe it's you. Maybe the, the man in the mirror is not the person that you really think think you, you are. And, and that was the time when I realized like, it was the most humbling experience to let your ego go and say, you know what? I need help. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought. And, and that's really where the foundation of growth began for me. Oof, man, Brandon. Yeah. That's <laughs> facts to follow here, dude. <laughs> hard, um, hard to follow what, these guys. Yeah. What, tell us a little bit more about, I know your sort of background, you didn't really want to be in sales, you know, professional soccer, full-time DJ, and in one of your first sales roles, I know you had shared with me that you only sold two print ads in your first six months, you yeah. know, on the job. But give us a little bit more about your kind of background and what was that crossing the chasm moment like for you? Yeah, I don't know that it was a single event, to be honest with you. I think it was a buildup of multiple things of unlocking something that I knew deep down inside. I had strong belief that I could do big things, didn't know what they were. And going back to my youth, um, particularly in high school, I focused on one thing. At the time, it was soccer. And I thought I was good. And it really wasn't until I got to college when I realized, hey, I, I was good in high school. I was good in my area. But when I got to a top program collegiately, uh, I didn't start um, my first two seasons. Um, but I had this belief, I had this belief I could I could do some big things. So I think for me, crossing the chasm was tapping into that inner belief system and starting with scarcity. Um, and, you know, like Jamal was saying, you know, sometimes you have to be, you know, put yourself uh, or be pushed up against the wall, either factors beyond your control, uh, like not having financial means or not having the the mental mechanisms, the coping mechanisms, like Ian was alluding to, to realize the power that we have is within ourselves to change the conditions around us. So I think it starts inside before you can change the, the outside world. So I got a little... You know, I look at it like a, a seed in a garden and I watered a little bit of it in my soccer career and I was okay putting myself in uncomfortable positions. I went to a top collegiate program, fortunately did not succeed there, but somehow worked really hard in the off season, so hard that I landed uh, with a professional club uh, in Eastern Europe and here I was, a non-starter for the first two seasons, leaving early to take a jump at, at trying my luck in Europe, trying to play catch up to these European players who were far more advanced technically than me. And I relied on my work ethic 
And so I sort of built this foundation of discipline that's been, you know, a, a strong uh, pillar of mine, you know, throughout my career. So I relied on that. Unfortunately, it put me into a tough situation where I, I, I got an injury because uh, I was overworking myself to try to catch up. But it was a lesson that, hey, putting myself in an uncomfortable position, I knew I could try to sh- at least strive for it because I didn't want to have regrets. So that was the first, I guess, crossing the chasm moment is I could be okay not starting or not winning the contract, but I wouldn't be okay not putting in the discipline and the work to at least go for it. Um, and then because of the injury issues that, that landed me to explore other things, didn't start my, my career in sales. I started with a soccer education startup. I, I was training youth players and uh, you know, I, I learned a thing or two about selling there, even though I wasn't actively selling. The first thing I learned was the best way to sell is to, to, to not sell, is to just be your authentic self. Um, and then I, I, I did, though, want to pursue another passion of mine behind me, you know, a pair of turntables. Um, here, I came up against the scarcity of not having enough income, a poverty uh, income level in New York City as a a 20-something. So I needed a new skill to pay the rent. And I really loved music. And so I taught myself how to DJ. And that did actually end up landing me an account management role at uh, this guy's uh, DJ school, Jam Master J of Run DMC. He co-founded a Scratch DJ Academy. (laughs) I learned how to DJ there. And that landed me into my first role selling but ran into some financial issues, had to declare bankruptcy. Um, my wife and I met in New York. We started over in a small town in Florida. And that brings me to like my first sales failure, learning how to go to local businesses, bars. I was selling for a small local newspaper and um, I, I, I couldn't make it. I, I sold only two ads in um, you know, the, the first handful of months. And I knew I was about to get fired. Um, and luckily made the, the jump before that, that occurred, um, but learned a lot uh, through, throughout those milestones. And then the, the scarcity mindset started to grow into more of an abundance mindset because I tapped into that inner belief system. Uh, that's great, Brandon. I want to kind of pose a question to you guys here because scarcity is a really like a common theme that you guys have talked about. And I also see a lot of people talking about it in the chat. And if you guys have any questions, again, feel free to drop into the Q&A. But Matt uh, Moxey, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly there, asked, are, how, are all of you grateful for the times of scarcity? What you know, ways did those times change you, your perspective? Do they move you to be a more empathetic mindset? I, I think a thing that we'd love to know is when you're dealing, when you're in a place of scarcity where you don't have this maybe runway, whether it be financially or scarcity around your mindset, you know, like Ian talked about, what do you guys do in those moments to, you know, kind of keep moving and stay positive and to take ownership? What do you guys, what do you guys do in those moments? Go ahead, Jamal. Looked like you were going to say something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, before the call, we were talking about scarcity and, and, and abundance. And uh, I was saying, you know, some of the most successful people in the world are, are, um, are acting out on scars that they received as children. 
you know, uh, either a, a parent was either um, uh, could be abusive or negligent or what have you. And so for the rest of their lives, they might be straddled with this feeling of I'm not good enough. And, then, you know, and, and you know, Ian talked about, you know, the scarcity mentality in terms of worth. These kinds of things, although they're what we suffer growing up, not necessarily only in childhood, but um, they can be massive drivers. And all of us suffer in this world, and all of us can use the sufferings that we've gone through as motivators for a better today and tomorrow. And uh, I, th I think that's huge. I mean, you know, I, I, I still think about that period of time that I went through, you know, physical or financial scarcity, because now I know what that's like, and I never want to be there again. And now I also know what it's like to do the things that I need to do to never put myself in that position again. And once you set up those habits, that that mindset and those habits to never go to that dark situation again, you can just propel yourself forward to the point where you kind of get over that summit for the first time. And, and you know, that's it's like, I don't know if I, everybody calls it this, but like the abundancy summit. As soon as you get to the, you know, the, the very top, you can kind of look over into that valley and see abundance for the first time. And you're like, holy cow, I never knew that existed. I was always in this valley of uh, of scarcity. And then but once you get there, you see it, you experience it, you just want to stay there. So having knowledge of the world of scarcity and bringing yourself to the world of abundance is a beautiful, it, it's, a, it's a transformation that, that, that all of us can go through. Yeah, I want to I wouldn't just piggyback on that if I could. There when I was living in Europe and uh you know kind of challenged with trying to figure out how was I going to win this professional contract and compete with these players who were far superior. Um maybe organically I was drawn to eastern philosophy and I started picking up books because I had a lot of time on my hands. We would train for an hour and a half typically in the morning, have lunch together as a team and train again, maybe in the afternoon. Um, and I picked up a book around Buddhism um, that was written by Teach Nhat Hanh. Um, and he was super wise leader. Uh, and it, there was something that stood with me for a really long time. How do you know you're made out of gold until you're melted a little bit? And I think that's really the power of understanding of that crossing the chasm from scarcity to abundance in anything, economic, mindset, love, whatever it is, uh, you, you, you kind of have to go through that melting period to unlock the gold, so to speak. And, and I think looking back on all three of us can really look back on those challenging moments to say, yeah, we can have gratitude and actually leading with gratitude and being appreciative every single day empowers you to show up and do your best work, whether that's selling really large mega deals, showing up for your family, uh, you name it. I, I have a, another quote that comes to mind. Um, short answer is every day, every day, because the failures keep you humble. The failures are what makes you realize who you are. And the minute our ego gets too big, that's when we fall hard. That's when the world comes crashing around us. And I've gone through that firsthand on my personal life. When I was making millions of dollars, when I was the top performer, my ego got ahead of me and it hurt me in the family side. And I nearly lost everything. Um, 
I won't get into too many details here, but the quote that comes to mind is the problem is the gift. And, and I'll give you a quick story. I hit top performer in Salesforce two years in a row, killed it, decided I was going to teach people, start my own personal business and teach people how to sell at the highest level. Started the side hustle, started doing really well there. Thought I was God's gift to the world. My ego got so high and I started, it shames me to talk about because I started distancing myself from my family because I wanted more time to work on me and my business and inflate my ego that I wasn't around as much. And I was neglecting the people that I love that cared about that really were foundational to my success. And my wife noticed. And I had been living an addictive life. Let's just put it that way. I was addicted to success, but I also had had physical addictions too. And in February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit, um, I came clean to my wife and, and I say, regardless of your spiritual beliefs, I, I believe in God heavily and something was calling me. God was calling me to come clean and, and share a little bit with my wife. And that was another rock bottom. That was a humbling moment. And that got me into recovery for addiction. And it's been over two years since I've gotten drunk, smoked pot, viewed pornography, taken Adderall, gambled, you name it. I used to do it. Two years. So the past two years have been the most humbling experience. And the reason I'm able to do that is because I know firsthand, has nothing to do with sales, that if I didn't make foundational changes, I would have lost that which mattered most. And every day I'm grateful. It was the hardest time in my life. It was the most painful. My wife left me briefly, but if that hadn't happened, I would never be able to stand and help other people the way I can help them now, not just in sales, but in their personal lives, because I had to go through it myself. So every day I'm grateful for not only the sales hardships, but the personal hardships that have made me grow stronger and fulfill what I believe is my mission. So yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing. And I tell my wife that I would never want to put her through that in a, in a million years, but I am so happy that we went through that because now I have nothing to hide. They say the freest man in the world is the one with nothing to hide. And, and that's, that's the gift. Yeah. The problem is the gift. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I want to, oh man, there's so much uh, that we, there's so many directions that we could go, but I, I want to, I think like for the second half, let's think some kind of more tactical things that people can do to start to level up. And I think it's really cool to hear from you guys that like where you started, it's just, it's crazy. Um, so let's talk about the environment. I think a question that I want to you know start with is, and uh, Jamal, I'll throw this question your way first. How does someone know if they're at the right company and the right org and the right environment to make seven figures at that company or to significantly level up their income? How do you know if you're in the right environment? How do you think about that? It's funny you asked me that first because for the longest time I, I didn't. <laughs> and it's only at, now that I've actually, you know, pulled myself out of that hole, the, the environment of working, you know, for one company and talking with so many sellers and, um, you know, kind of a, a, almost a prerequisite for doing the kind of coaching that I do is, you know, helping people do the largest deals of their lives. 
So what's the use of doing a huge deal if you can't, you know, reap the benefits from it? So you asked for some tactical stuff. So one is to really understand the value proposition and just, just in terms of the comp plan, let's get really super, super basic. So one of the things that you need to understand or, or just, you know, read through if you, you know, if you're evaluating your current company is, are there any arbitrary caps in the comp plan? Are there any massive limitations? And I, and I've, I've suffered from those, you know, there have been caps and there have been like limitations, like you can only earn so much, you, you can only go so far over an annual quota if you do it with one deal or one customer. And there's, there's other things like that, you know, there's co-selling and all these kind of things. So really understand the comp plan to know, um, are, are you going to be rewarded? And typically, not always, but typically, the, the more mature or, or established a company is, the more limitations there are going to be in compensation. The earlier the company is in their maturation, the more open they're going to be because they're hungry for any kind of revenue. But even there, you have to be careful because a brand new startup use, excuse me, is going to be using their sellers to do a lot of evangelizing. And so there's not as much selling as there is evangelizing in, in general, not in every case. So there, it, you, you got to kind of try to find that if, if you're shopping for the right environment, it, it, you know, it generally tends to be in a place where, you know, a company's reached, you know, you know it's kind of like mid to late stage startup, almost scale up, and they're really trying to ramp. And then, you know, the comp plan is going to make, make, make all the difference in the world. And, and then it comes to, you know, what kind of team are you on? What kind of management do you have? Or are they going to be supportive? Ian and Brandon and I all talk about how much it takes a village or a, or a small city to do the really large deals. And yes, you can do well by doing smaller, medium deals, but you're going to go through the grind like Ian kind of described. Um, definitely Brandon's gone through lots of grinding in his career. So kind of the sweet spot is find a company is in it's in the right mat, you know level of maturation find a comp plan that is going to reward you for your efforts and find a team that's going to be able to sell with you as a tribe and not just leave you as an individual yeah one 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 thing i discovered um i think jamal is spot on there um you know i was with a late stage startup selling for the first time you know, with Enterprise brands. Enterprise brands is this late stage startup described it. And everybody, I think, you know, especially in the SaaS space, will describe enterprise in, in a different way. Um, but I was with a company that was primarily focused on small and medium-sized businesses. They were selling uh, iPad point of sale systems to restaurants and retailers. And I was on a team of one of two. So that was fun. I really enjoyed it. It was an enjoyable experience, but I was capping my earnings potential. The manager, the other person I was working with, he was a sort of a player coach, so to speak, because he was an active seller. Here I was with somebody who could, could run autonomously, so he didn't have to manage me so much. But the two of us, we were definitely selling the future to these really large brands uh, in the retail space and, and, and the restaurant space. Um, but we didn't really have the infrastructure, you know, if a you know, really large brand came to us and, and wanted to do true due diligence, right? There wasn't the infrastructure there to support it. Um, having a really sharp attorney to, you know, negotiate an MSA, you know, with you, that was really tough to do. And even on the comp structure, 
the manager was working on, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could sort of lock in 300K for ourselves? Um, obviously, we've got to deliver something for that. Um, but I knew, I knew this unicorn thing could happen of earning a million dollars in software sales. So I wasn't happy, satisfied with just being limited to that. Again, that was scarcity mindset to me inner belief system. I had grown as a professional by that, that point, but I was able to find a Goldilocks, um, you know, as, as Jamal was pointing out, you got to find that Goldilocks environment for you. And I think that's something that's really important is you got to do sort of the deep dive on yourself, defining what's really important, um, not just the culture and the company and the comp plan that's going to be there to support you, but even your account list. You know, doing a deep dive on defining why you're targeting certain accounts versus arbitrarily working through an, uh, an account plan. So finding that sweet spot, you know, that's a very good tactical thing. Um, when I made the jump from that late stage startup, I did go to a public company and live person. However, I knew and it felt like a late stage startup. So I had the cultural component that I was very accustomed to. But now I was I was able to access because they were an enterprise first company as well. They had access to the legal resources that I was lacking before. They had access to the professional services that can deliver transformation to to really large brands. They had the leadership and 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 support structure to help close these massive deals. So that was like my Goldilocks opportunity to say ah, this can be done. Seven figures could be done in that environment. And so I offer that up as a good place for people to start when evaluating um, you know, where to go. Great tools. Uh, I know we all know it well, RepView, um, because you're getting the inside uh, track on straight from the front lines of sellers. They're going to tell you what the comp structure is, how many folks are making quota, what you can you know, really earn uh, that's a, a great little resource uh, for for anybody looking to level up. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, Jamal and Brandon said said most of what needs to be said. But I, I worked in copiers for ten years, and I I had built that business up. We were when I left a sixty million dollar annual business. I had ten sales managers and seventy AEs on my team. I was their director of sales, and I was making running a sixty million dollar business, making about two fifty a year. And I read an article in Forbes magazine, and it said that the average enterprise account executive at Salesforce was making 300. And that was my aha moment, because you don't know what you don't know. And so I said, well, I'm using Salesforce. This has been part of my growth. I want to go there. And I interviewed three times, got rejected all three times, finally <laughs> found someone who came from HP and, and was selling copiers and kind of knew that DNA. And I bring that up because one of the first things I did when I got to the company, I said, what are the top reps making here? And I learned that there was someone in Manhattan Beach near where I live who was making a million dollars a year. And I you know, got her to lunch and talked to her about it. And I think a big part of it is going to a place where the top performers are earning seven figures, You know, going to a place where it's been done. If the top people are making four or five, you're probably not going to come in and make a million dollars, especially if they're two or 300% of plan. Because I have a video about this I posted about a year ago, like how to make seven figures in sales. And one of the things I said is you have to have a comp structure where 
you can make that if you're hitting around 300% typically. So if you if you do the math and you look at your accelerators and whatever it is, you don't have to sell $10 million. You have to be 300%. Because again, if your OTE is 300K and your plan is 150, 150, and you have a $1.5 million quota, you just have to make four and a half million to get to that 300%. But you really want to be in that sweet spot where you do the math work backwards. And if you can sell um, 300% or so, you can you know, get that opportunity. That is the key. I mean, that's something that's the first thing I work on is my coaching clients is like plug in their accelerator, see what they need to sell in order to make the money that they want. Know your comp plan really well and know exactly what you need to sell to be able to hit that. And, and, and I, I mean, that's huge. If you don't have... And the other thing is your average deal size, right? If you're if you're trying to go to a company where the average deal size is fifty thousand dollars, you're going to have to sell big deals to make big money. And so, if their biggest deal is two three hundred k, you're probably not going to make a million dollars, right? You do the math. So, having the right company where people are doing it, the right product that can can sell to large deals to enterprise, and the right comp plan are the three pillars that I think you need to to make seven figures in sales. A theme from all three of you, it sounds very simple, but knowing your comp plan inside and out and just exploring the limitations of your current comp plan. And I'm guessing that a lot of folks maybe haven't done that. And if you're trying to make more money looking at, hey, is the environment that I'm in and just my comp structure, is that a big thing holding me back? And just due to the nature of the business that we do on the type of of accounts, I want to ask you guys, Jamal, throw this question your way first. How... Like what would be some red flags in terms of leadership, either interviewing for a job or at your current company? What would be some of the red flags you would be thinking about that? Hey, this is something that might limit my success here. Um, that, that's, a, that's a great question because so, so many of them. So I've, I've definitely worked for a few managers that were less than desirable. And it, it's really hard to suss that out in one or two or three interviews before you get an offer and, you know, kind of go back and forth. Um, one um, red flag to me is when they start to fish around for um, just levels of activity. When, when, when there's a real, fo- you know, all, all three of us talk about, you know, sales is not a numbers game. It's an impact game, et cetera. And, and so sometimes a manager can really show their hand. When they start, you know, how many, how many dials do you do? How many emails go out? You know, what's your, what does your general day look like? Now, some of that is innocent because they just are, are trying to get granular on your selling reality, but you can kind of start to hear, okay, there's a theme here. And, you know, you can start to see what's behind this is that they value activity. And that can be at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag. But on the other side of it, once you're in the soup with the manager, you're, you're working for them. Uh, things can change dramatically, relatively quickly. The first manager that I had at Oracle was the worst manager of my entire career. And he was so bad, he effect, impacted my health. I, I, you know, I, I was having nightmares, cold sweats. My, my, uh, my self-esteem went through the floor, even though I was rookie of the year. And uh, it was just uh, living out of fear. And I was like, okay, I guess that's what it means to work with the big boys, right? Because um, I, I felt that was the culture that I needed to learn how to live in if I was going to thrive. And man, was, was I wrong. Um, even within Oracle, uh, my next manager and my third manager were worlds better than that first one. Um, but it's happened more than once. And so the other thing is how they make, how they make you feel 
when you're performing well and when you're not performing well. If they can give you know, constructive criticism and, and help, help you course correct, that's a, a really good manager. If maybe you're doing well and not doing well, but they could still make you kind of second guess your own decisions or maybe leave you feeling like, oh, I should have done so much more. Whatever I did was insufficient. Another huge red flag. So I guess the biggest message that I would have about this is that if you have a manager who's consistently making you feel less than when you're doing well or when you're not doing well, it's really time to think through, is that a place that you want to be? Because I'm here to tell you that's that's not your, in your best interest for the long term. And there are so many other selling realities that are better. Yeah. Yeah. A big red flag for me is um, if you're going through the interviewing process, one, you should have the confidence that it, it, it's not just the company evaluating you. You should be evaluating that company and the culture and the people, the comp structure, everything. Um, because this is where you're going to spend a lot of your time, a lot of your energy and put forth a lot of attention. So it needs to be the right place for you. Um, I like to ask a lot of why questions. Don't just tell me what's happening at that company. Tell me a little bit about the why. And it'd be a big red flag if that manager, that leader couldn't explain the reasons why they're doing the things that they're doing, the the targeting of very specific strategic accounts. Well, tell me why. You know, how did you come to that uh, conclusion on this is the right strategy? Tell me a little bit about the why behind the, the comp structure. Um, so I think it's really important to ask those why questions. You'll you'll get I think a really good tell of their level of thinking. I look for systems thinkers, design thinkers. I think those are great managers to work for is they're thinking about how to make, you know, obviously their constituents, their, their true customer are their team members, right? The employees that work for them. So they should be working for them um, and supporting them and, and helping them grow. And another good metric is to try to pull out stories about how they've helped change the life of one of their reps or two or three uh, or more. Um, and I think another good sign to look for is how public they are with sharing their systems, sharing their philosophies, sharing how they grow. Go to LinkedIn. Um, if, if they're not talking about their culture, they're not talking about sharing, hey, here are the principles that guide me and the team. Um, you know, it's, 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 hard to work in that environment. Um, and you might find yourself in a place where they're on the brink of burnout themselves because they're stressed. So I think finding those managers who are equipped and have, have found that balance of, hey, I publicly talk about this because it's a good thing. It's one, it's, it's a good talent magnet. But more importantly, it's how I define my own principles so, so that everybody, that the whole team can rally behind what we're trying to build here. I think it's a really important thing to look for. Ian? What I would look for in addition to the managers, because managers are really important, but in, in high growth companies, SaaS companies, managers 
often change. You know, I had a lot of managers over my nine years at Salesforce and maybe you start working for someone and then they leave, they get promoted, something happens. I love to think about the culture of the company. One of the, one of the things I really loved about Salesforce is, is just generally um, there was a big emphasis on um, culture and giving back environment, not, not, so much it was embedded in in their dna and their fabric and and you saw that you saw that from talking to people during the hiring process um you see it publicly just go on glassdoor and look at the reviews massively across the companies and companies that are the best places to work for on glassdoor there's a reason for it because they take care of their people look at what people say it's not only about the money you got to be in a place where culture is is strong. And, and, you know, I, I'm a big believer if I was going to work for a company again, I would go right to like best place to work from employees. I go to the lists on Glassdoor and not so much fortune, but like really what are employees saying about, about the company? Cause I mean, they're the ones who are there already. And so that was a big thing. What I did is when I, when I talked to peers, it's not just the manager, you talk to people who work there, see what it's like and how long they've been there. Look at the turnover rate, right? That'll tell you what, you know, what you need to know. Cause really the manager is great. If you work for someone you love, but what happens when they leave? So really the long-term company, I stayed at two companies for 19 years. Cause I did like the culture. I liked, you know, the overall company. And the other thing is you got to believe in what you're selling. If you're not going to get excited about what you're selling or the mission of the company, it's going to be hard to be successful as well. So find, you know, the manager, but also the culture and the product or service that you can get excited about and talk to customers. So a lot of factors go into it. The company culture I'm hearing from all of you guys is incredibly important. Like the leadership, your peers, uh, Jamal, Brandon, you guys both talked a lot about the managers, comp plan limitations, making sure that it's just an environment where this is even possible for you to make seven figures or to significantly level up your income. Let's let's shift gears again, because a big part of what we're talking about today, just a reminder for anyone that's hopped in, is we're really talking about the approach behind making seven figures. The next session, we'll talk more tactics around outbound, the session after more tactics around selling. But a big part of this approach is the mindset of approaching executives. And mm -hmm. every single one of you guys talked about this and every one of you had kind of your own story, you know, around it too. But Ian, I'll kick this question your way to get started. You talk a lot about this. And one of the things that you had mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting you say on your website, you know, without the right skills and strategies in place, your performance will never change and sales will you know, feel like a grind. You know, I feel like a lot of the strategies and skills, one of those big ones is being able to confidently talk to someone that is very experienced, probably more experienced than you are in terms of like their career experience. How do you think about and what was that journey like for you? And like, oh, I need to talk to a CEO of like a Fortune yeah. 500 company, Fortune 50 company. What was that like for you? So a couple of things. You used the word grind. And I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about what is grinding. And I think about my coffee maker. You put a bunch of beans. They're all the same. And you grind them and you get equally distributed grains of coffee. And that's kind of what grinding in sales looks like. It looks like treating everyone as a transaction, as a potential sale. And it is exhausting and it's not fulfilling. And, and the big shift that I think all of us made, um, at least that I made, was a shift from being inward focused, my goals, my quota, my commissions, me, 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 to outward focused. Um, really selling is helping. Selling is solving the biggest problems. Sell, selling is 
you know, truly helping companies transform. And when you're focused on helping other people get what they want, and especially at the executive level, you are going to get what you want. You're going to get the sales, you're going to get the commissions, you're going to get the the big paychecks. But when you're focused only on yourself and making it about you, customers can smell that commission breath a mile away. And so really that fear is coming from ego. That fear is not from not having the skills. I was the same person in 2016 as I was in 2017 when I finished number one. The big difference is I stopped making it about me. So when talking to executives, it really is intimidating if you're thinking about what you bring to the table. But if you just leave your ego at the door and realize, you know what? Hey, people are people. We all put our pants on the same way and I'm here to help and to serve you. And it's not about me. It's about listening, understanding, having a conversation, then that's a lot less intimidating. But when you're coming from a place of trying to impress somebody and teach them everything, you know, you're already, you're already, um, defeating yourself before you even give yourself a chance. So ego is the enemy. Truly the best salespeople, the ones that take the time to be empathetic, to listen, to be genuinely curious because they want to help people. And that was where I was, you know, struggling for the years I missed quota when I realized like, Hey, this isn't about me. It's about listening and helping people. And if it's in the, if it's meant to be, and I can help them and, you know, ultimately we're a good fit, then great. And if it's not, no worries. Like, being attached to that outcome is really um, a source of, of challenge. So I think when you, you think about, you know, speaking to executives, there's a few things you need to do, but, you know, really showing them you care by getting good at listening, taking the time to research them, understand specifically, you know, listening to their webinars or what they're speaking about, really understanding what they care about and coming in with powerful questions, a point of view, show you're really thinking about how you can help them. Like that will position you differently than other salespeople. And they see you're taking the time to really care and show up in a place of service. And they will be a lot more open. They will be a lot more receptive and just treat them as a human, right? And I, I think when we put up people on a pedestal, then we're looking up to them and they're looking down at, uh, at us and we can't see them eye to eye. And, and really selling is about seeing pe people as peers, regardless of their title or their position. Because at the end of the day, we're all people. We all have the same struggles. We all, none of, none of our shit doesn't stink, right? We're all humans. And so that's the key. It's a mindset of seeing people as equals and not putting someone on a pedestal. At least for me, that was a big, a big difference in how I approached these meetings. I eventually got to a place where I found it easier talking with, say, C-level executives um, it was a long journey to get there. Um, what I realized looking back in those moments of why is this? Why is it easier to sit across from a C-level executive and talk about, hey, how can we personalize healthcare just like Spotify has personalized music playlists? I loved talking about that. And I realized it was one big thing. I was a, a big thinker. I, I dreamed big. It was like a core principle of mine. But it was a long struggle to get there. And a, a couple of things really helped me. One was getting over imposter syndrome. So Ian talked about getting to that level where you can realize, hey, sales is a very human-driven, it's a very human-centric industry. And the other side of the table, it's another human being. And if we put them on a pedestal, that can create this artificial anxiety and fear that doesn't need to be there because 
C-level executives, leaders of, of companies, they want to dream big too. They want to go after those big moonshots. And those, that's where the mega deals happen. It's actually where you get lost in the shuffle is at that mid-level director level inside the organization. That's when RFPs come out. That is when you're commoditized. That's when it's all about price, features, and jargon. And that's, you know, as Jamal think calls it, uh, run rate selling. That's where it's hyper competitive. It's a lot less competitive up there in the clouds. Again, to steal from from Jamal, I've learned a lot from Mega Deal Secrets. Um, you you can you can really find it, it, it actually easier to enable that change up there, but it takes a, a lot, right? We're humans too, right? And somebody who didn't finish college to go talk with a, a Fortune 10 CEO who has an MBA for Harvard Business School, right? that can be a very intimidating thing. So I had to overcome imposter syndrome. And what I, I took away from that was deliberately working with an outside coach. So I got outside help. Another great tip for anybody here looking to level up. You know, there's only so much you can do looking within. Sometimes it's really helpful getting an outside perspective. But what she helped me do, what Amber did was help me to rethink what my weaknesses were that I were, I was holding on to these things that I was attaching myself to like introversion. Spoke up a little bit about it on LinkedIn today. For so long, I thought my introversion in an extroverted, what I thought was an extroverted world of sales was holding me back. Whereas once I worked through this, I realized, no, actually being a great listener, being a deep thinker, you know, wanting to do the research and finding and uncovering insights, it's really powerful. And um, that helped me to kind of repurpose what I thought was a weakness into a strength. So getting over imposter syndrome is a good first step. And then you want to get yourself to that high level because it's less competitive there. Because the other thing I learned too is it can take just as long selling a $250,000 deal as it takes, if not longer, than selling the $2.5 million deal or the $25 million deal. Because when you're at that level, you're outside of a box. And talking about a deal of that size it's going to make transformative change. That's going to pull in on, on people who want to lean in. If you're talking at the, the $250,000 level, you might stay in that box after that transaction is done. You want to elevate yourself to the transformative level. Jamal, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you got a whole book you know, on this, but uh, what are your kind of quick tips on speaking to executives? What do these people care about? What kind of learning curve did you have? So Ian talked about the human element. Brandon talked about you know leveling up and 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 stay, staying high and having that um, you know the, the the wherewithal to do the research and to come with the right message. And the the third piece that I would add is most of my career I've been in quite technical areas, usually pharma tech like R, pharma R and D. And I, I don't know if this is a boast or if I just say it, but I'm typically the dumbest guy in the room. So <laughs> from that vantage point, I always remember what my, my the North, I call her my North Star. Uh, the first person who I ever saw do a mega deal, her name was Marcy Akers. And um, 
back in 2007, when I was a rookie at Oracle, I was doing like half million dollar deals, million and a half. She was doing 20. And then the next year she did, I think, almost 30. One of the most compelling things that she ever said to me was she said, Jamal, I am an extremely needy seller. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? She says, I need a lot of people to do most of the heavy lifting, especially in front of the executive audience. So sometimes we can level up ourselves and sometimes we can do the research, but without that team and without those folks who are just as deep as that CEO, that SVP, the person who's been in a technical field for a bajillion years, we could we could give the overview, but when they start asking the second, third, fourth line of questions, you need somebody who had been wearing those boots for 30 or 40 years. And so the ability to craft a team and to do the mapping of the right people to bring with you, or in some times, instead of you, you step back and become the choreographer, not the actor, the coach, not the quarterback. That's that. That's a piece that I would add to staying high, selling above the clouds. Is yes, Ian is absolutely right that we need to 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 we can't we can't always be looking up. We have to be you know go eye to eye. Brandon's also right in terms of being able to do the research and having that message. And I would add, sometimes it's not us who would be delivering that. Um, I could go on and on, but I think we're at time. <laughs> Oh man, there's, I mean, this could have been a three hour conversation today. Um, we are almost up on time, everyone. Uh, before we take off next event, we're going to get really tactical with outbound. That's next Thursday. Make sure to show up to that. The week after that, these three are going to reverse engineer a really big deal that they closed. And I'm really looking forward to that. But before we take off, uh, let us know in the chat, what was your biggest takeaway from today? What was a little nugget that you got? What did you enjoy? What piece of advice did you like? Let me know in the chat, what's a, what's a nugget that you took away from the session? Let's boost these guys' egos a little bit, okay? <laughs> For me, it was the problem is the gift. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. Yeah, I love I like that, that quote. Your guys' stories and how vulnerable you guys are is something that uh, I really admire and look up to. It, it's, it's always uh, the gift if we choose cool. to see it that way, if we can find it. Because sometimes you don't know what it is. It's not visible. It, it is. It takes some digging. Yeah. It's easy to react and think, have a victim mindset, but everything happens for a reason. Yep. A lot of great What's stuff coming in. It's it's cool to see like a, a, a common theme of vulnerability. I think this is where, you know, big things happen is when you can be authentic and open. So it was, it was great sharing the floor with you guys today. Appreciate it. And great that Jason, thank you for setting this up for the whole community. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Jason. Yep. Yeah. This was great. You guys. Um, Thank you everyone for the interaction. Ian, Jamal, Brandon, we'll see you guys next Thursday. Have a good rest of your week, everyone. See you everyone. Take care guys. Bye.